From the studios of KPCW in Park City, this is The Mountain Life. Healthy living in the Wasatch. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. This morning, David Windsor and I speak with ultra runner, biomedical engineer, and Lululemon ambassador Leah Yingling about training, resilience, overcoming trauma, and fitting it all in. Th- then, excuse me, why not try a 103 mile race on foot, fat bike, or skis in the harsh Wyoming winter in the Wind River Mountains, hauling your sleeping bag, GPS, water, and food behind you. We speak with the organizers of this wild race called The Drift. That's coming up this hour on The Mountain Life. Stay with us. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to The Mountain Life. I'm David Windsor. And I'm Lynn Ware Peak. Our next guest, Leah Yingling, is a Utah transplant who came from a graduate degree in biomedical engineering to run around the Wasatch Mountains. When we say run, what we actually mean is the ultra run, training alongside the Wasatch trails over hundreds of miles to regularly finish top 10 in such coveted races, including the Bear 100 here in Utah, the Western States 100, and the UTMB, the Ultra Trail de Mont Blanc. She's a Lululemon ambassador and works with the biomedical engineering field She attributes her success on the trails on and off with her passion for intersection of science and ultra running. Leah, welcome to The Mountain Life. Thanks so much for having me. Well, as most listeners of this show will know, I'm completely obsessed with individuals like you, the the individuals who go above and beyond, who challenge themselves, who put themselves in a situation where the inevitable wanting to quit is going to happen. So what got you into this and why are you still doing it? Yeah, that's a great question because I ask myself that almost every day whenever I'm having a hard time on a run. Uh, But yeah, I found running mostly in high school as a pastime, you know, running cross country with my uh, three sisters. I'm from the East Coast originally from Western Pennsylvania and sharing miles in my childhood with them really ignited a love for running. And it wasn't necessarily the racing, these cross country races, but it was the everyday training when we'd be getting out on our back door uh, trails around our house, those weekend long runs that really let me feel truly alive as a runner in those early days. I ended up running my first marathon um, when I was in college. My first marathon was the Pittsburgh Marathon and kind of just liked going further and further. And once I graduated college, found myself in Washington, D.C., which oftentimes can feel like a concrete jungle, but actually has some pretty great trails and really wanted to find a community there, uh, find my way there. And the way that I did that was via my two feet and found myself running trails most days after work and slowly but surely found my community there and ended up uh, running my first 50k and then once I moved to Utah it I always tell people that's when my ultra running really took off it was not only an opportunity to explore a new place but an opportunity to really form bonds with people in the community and I don't think there's any better way for me to experience community and relationships than sharing miles in the great outdoors especially in the Wasatch Mountains I love that I I would imagine that the ultra community is a really special community. It's just a a small group of people that are willing to go out there and endure this. And because of it, the bond becomes much more strengthened throughout. One of the things I, I learned from reading about you was that there was a team USA. You, first of all, you were selected to team USA to run the trail world championships, the 80 K in Thailand. I didn't even know there was 
an organized group of I don't know how you would call it, but like a, a team event, if you will, that represents countries across. I thought it was an individual sport. So can you tell us a little bit about representing USA and what that world championship encompasses? Yeah, so representing Team USA is still one of my favorite ultra running memories to date. Um, so USATF has they govern a lot of what's going on in the track and field world, also the marathons. But what people don't know is that USATF actually has a branch that's dedicated to mountain ultra trail. So it's abbreviated MUT. And under um, the mountain and ultra trail falls the world championships, which happen every two years. And the, uh, those championships have a 40K and 80K um, classic, which is usually around a 10K trail race and then a vertical race. And um, that this past year was the first time all those races were held together during the same event. And it was just this huge festival of events and it was really, really incredible. And this the one I participated in took place in Chiang Mai, Thailand. And the course was 80 kilometers with, I mean, maybe 5,000 feet of 5,000 meters of climbing. So probably 16,000 feet or so. Um, just incredible through the jungle of Thailand. And like you mentioned, like it's not often that we get to participate in running as a team sport, especially beyond high school and college. So this was a really, really special opportunity because the top, it's like top four or so, top three or four runners end up scoring for the team. And Team USA, I think we ended up being about fourth place, um, missing out on medals by a little bit, but the men I think took home, maybe they missed gold by maybe a, a couple minutes or so, but it's, you're running for somebody that's not yourself in this race i ended up being the top american but i'm thinking in my mind the whole time that i'm running out there i'm you know 40 miles into this race and i'm thinking every spot matters every person in front of me matters every second matters so often in a race you have to have a lot of this intrinsic motivation and just personally willing yourself forward but this actually added an extra bonus motivation to the picture because, okay, you might not be having your best day out there, but even if you're not having your best day, just inching yourself forward and forward a little bit more matters to your entire team. So I think that's such an exceptional experience, especially to experience as an adult athlete, because you often get that in your younger years and to have that opportunity to represent team USA, to have that team experience. It's just, it was extremely special. Mm. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Leah Yingling. She is a Utah resident, a transplant to Utah, and she's a Lulu Lemon ambassador and an ultra runner, a highly decorated ultra runner from, you know, being on the cross country team in high school. And by the way, I saw that picture of you and your three sisters and you all made it to the state championships. And I'm, I'm looking at it saying, the the parent your parents what did they just have one girl after another after another after another like a year apart because how are you all in high school at the same time i always say bless my parents soul so there's four of us we are all within three years of each other so and four girls in high school at the same time which just i cringe at the thought of that for my own future self but they did it they did an amazing job we fought a little bit but to this day where we get along so well but yeah it was ninth grade ninth grade 10th grade 12th grade so i'm a twin so that definitely helped them get that fourth child in that three-year period because otherwise that'd be a little tricky but yeah god bless them they are incredible and i truthfully do not know how they did it 
Yeah, absolutely. So you went from cross country to running marathons, presumably on the street, and then you did your first 50. I, I'm wondering what that transition is from running a 26 mile marathon into a 50 mile or 100 mile or 100K. What's the big difference? Yeah, so I did marathons for a few years and something like I still enjoy doing the occasional marathon. I actually haven't done one since I think 2019, but something that was different about the two was running a marathon is just so pace driven. You know your goals, you know what your target is, and it's fun to chase paces, but at the same time, sometimes it takes a little bit of the fun out of it and like the true enjoyment of enjoying every aspect of your training runs and your actual race itself. And it was something that I just wanted to explore a little bit deeper was, okay, I'm, I like be doing these pace driven runs, but like, let's bring a little bit more fun into it. And that's where the 50 K 50 mile distance, um, really looked desirable to me because, you know, it wasn't like you're just going out there looking at your watch every mile to make sure you're on, on your pace. You're, enjoying the outdoors, you're hucking it up a hill, you're breathing so hard, and you just have no metric of what your pace is, or really even what your effort is. It's just, how hard are you breathing? Can I have a conversation while I'm doing this with my friends? We stop and take snack breaks. It's It was truly, truly enjoyable. And I always tell people when they marvel over you know the distances that I cover, I'm like, I just do it because you can go slower for longer. So it's mostly just a fear for me, not wanting to go fast anymore, but it's, it's special. And I even think the training itself, um, it doesn't have to be entirely different. I think, especially when you take your first step up from a marathon, usually the entryway to ultra marathons is the 50 K distance, which is actually only five miles further than a marathon. So ultra marathons are defined by any distance greater than a marathon, but the most common distance beyond a marathon is 50K, which is just over 31 miles. And oftentimes the training can look very similar for a 50K as it does for a marathon. Um, usually the only difference in training is maybe doing back-to-back -back long runs on a weekend, whereas normally you'd be doing maybe just one 20 miler or something for your marathon training. Uh, and then for 50 miles and 100 milers, it gets a little bit more intensive in training where your main target is just getting a lot of time on feet, a lot of volume in your training, um, but so much so that you're not burning yourself out, which I think is a really delicate balance as we're seeing ultra running get a little bit more professionalized um, these last few years is really riding that line of how much can I get out of myself and really maximizing your potential, but also being aware that, you know, we all want longevity in the sport and how do we accomplish that at the same time? Well, the longevity is, I think, defined by the sport itself. I mean, that's all you're doing is just running for a really long time. I, I became introduced to ultra running through a couple of groups of friends of mine that are, you know, they're professional mountaineers and they started doing these 50 Ks and, and then, excuse me, 50 miles and then hundred miles. And, and then, um, I'm a, I'm a bow hunter. So I've been, I, there's a couple of guys that I follow that, their, their whole MO is just running 100 miles and they're just getting trained for the hunting season every year in the mountains. And one of the individuals I've come across is Courtney DeWalter. And she, I was, Lynn and I were talking about this the other day and there's the Moab 250 that she ran and I'm making these statistics up, but she won the thing by, I don't even know, 20 miles, six hours, something, something just crazy. And she just dominated the field. And as I've started watching these races more and more and becoming a little bit more in tune with the sport, women just absolutely dominate the sport. And what do you think it is about whether it's the makeup of the, the 
the, the 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 body of the female or is it the mindset and just the the mentality that women have differently going through these these really long stretches yeah this is something that's really interesting to me because even when i look at an entrance list one of the first things i do every time i sign up for a race is i look at the entrance list to see what the composition of the race is and ultra running is still predominantly male dominated so it's usually like 80 percent men on the entrance list maybe 20 percent women so and this has been historically true i mean we just started seeing even like 20 percent makeup in recent years it might have been you know 10 percent 10 years ago so we're seeing women make up more of the field which is exciting but it's still pretty drastically low um but in recent years we've really been seeing women compete with the men a bit more than ever, and especially as the distance gets a bit longer um, in 100 milers, for example, um, we see kind of that gap get a little bit less. And something that I hypothesize is, I like to think that women run a bit smarter in these longer races. You know, we tend to have less of an ego. We tend to be a little bit more methodical about how we plan for a race because it's almost about like self-preservation over the long haul rather than like, you know, attacking from the front, which we see a lot of our male counterparts tend to do in some of the longer races. That's entirely anecdotal. And it's what I've just seen a lot of. Um, but there actually is a lot of research that's going into this and Lululemon is a big part of this in this upcoming year. Um, I'm part of an initiative that's called Further, which is going to be the six day ultra marathon that takes place um, this March. And one part of Lou Lemon's initiative with this is understanding how do we push women further and how do we do that by providing them, you know, mental health resources, mental performance resources. How do we understand the biology and the physiology, physiology behind women in ultra marathon events? So I've been a part of a few research protocols that the Canadian Sport Institute is putting on um, in concert with this, which is really exciting because I think the research is still really underdeveloped in this area to truly understand why are women closing the gap more and more um, as these distances get longer. So I think there's still a lot of unknowns. I have like my hypotheses with it, but I think it's a really exciting time to be a woman at this intersection because as we've seen, like Courtney DeWalter is, I mean, she's almost an anomaly. She's pushing women further and further. And what's really exciting in the races that I've competed in with her is she's pulling the entire women's field with her. So one example I'll give is Western States this past year. Um, I finished in the top 10 and Courtney DeWalter set a drastic one hour, over an hour course record at this race. And she brought the entire women's top 10 to the fastest times they've ever seen where like 10th place would have won in almost any other year in the past. So I think women are bringing out the best in each other. And I think we can attribute a lot of it to what Courtney is doing as well. I love oh, that. That's great. <laughs> Leah, one of the things at the same time, we're talking about women going further and faster. One of the things you're becoming known for is I, I think it was all propagated by a stepping on a nail a week before one of your ultra marathons. And so you were forced to give up the last week of training. And you've been talking more and more, you know, especially like on Instagram and, and places and social media about training less, but it's very strategic. Can you explain that? Because I think we all talk about training less, but people still way over train. 100%. Yeah. So I am a working professional. I work um, as a biomedical engineering for a cardiology and electrophysiology company in the medical device space. And my time is pretty limited. We don't, my husband and I don't have a family yet, but it's something that we want. 
um, down the road. And something I've thought a lot about in recent years, especially as I preach longevity, is you know how do I strike a good balance? And I think social media, for example, has really propagated doing more, more, more. Like where I'm on Strava, I'm on Instagram, you see people's glamorous runs. You see these numbers that are just mind blowing, especially that men are putting up in training for races like UTMB. So UTMB, for example, it's um, 108 miles over 30,000 feet of climbing. It's a loop in the Alps that goes around Mount Blanc. And for me, my finish time was just over 26 hours this past summer. And you know the men are finishing around that 20, 20 hour range as well. So in order to perform well there, like your training needs to be pretty hefty. And in training for this, it was so easy to just look on Strava and get bogged down by these huge numbers that you're seeing from vertical climbing that people are doing in a week to miles covered. And I'm talking anywhere from like people running consistently 150 miles in a week, which is end up being 25 to 30 hours, just like almost unimaginable. It's a full-time job. And for some people, it actually is a full-time job. Um, but for me, it's not my full-time job and I need to fit it into 10 to 15 hours most weeks because this is pretty much my only pastime. Um, so something I really advocate for is like less is more and it can be more. And I've had great success with that. And I think something that's really important with this mindset is not tying yourself to immediate success. So sometimes when newcomers come into the sport, you know, they want immediate success. They want to see like all the work that they're putting in show up as a result on paper. And something I talk a lot about is I've been in this sport for going on 10 years and I've just chipped away each year. I've chipped away incrementally. I've never had this astounding performance, but I've been really consistent. And I think in terms of longevity, that's really what matters to me most is every time I'm showing up on a start line, I'm perfectly recovered. I'm not overtrained in the least. And I'm mentally fresh because I think there's a lot that can happen during a race if you're just like not entirely mentally there, but also like not physically there as well. So some things that I like to incorporate are rest days. I take a rest day every single Monday, really reading my body and understanding after a big effort that I don't need to jump back in immediately. Like I did two big hundred milers this summer and something I that I really held on to was giving myself sufficient recovery after the first one, knowing that I wanted to put my best foot forward in the second one. So maybe my coach said that was 10 days off, but if I wasn't feeling it after 10 days, we took an extra five days and just feeling completely detaching my ego in those situations and recognizing like this is what's the most important. Well, you've obviously always loved running um, and yet you had a major life event that could have taken this sport away from you forever. And I think it's really important to ask you about because it's about resilience and it's about not allowing trauma to steer the course of our lives and and kind of how you overcame that yeah so in 20 uh, 2011 i believe yeah um it was when i was uh, 19 years old after my first year of college i was visiting my hometown for the summer and went out for a normal three to four mile run and on the trails um, not too far from where it was uh, where i grew up and broad broad daylight i was out on a casual run and i got attacked at knife point and sexually assaulted and this was something i never imagined happening i was running alone that day i you know i had my phone luckily i escaped they ended up um 
they've they caught the guy later on a couple days following and you know he was in jail for several years however it was something so traumatizing in that moment because i heard all, there was it was just a lot of noise you know why were you running by yourself did you have pepper spray with you did you have a weapon did you have this how did you respond and you know oftentimes especially as a woman we inherently don't feel super safe on trails to begin with and then to almost feel a lot of this pressure of like was there something that i could have done differently in that situation to make it have a different outcome I think that was pretty traumatizing in itself. Um, so coming back from that, it was extremely easy to kind of cower and just default to, you know, road running in places that I was very familiar with, with people all the time. And to this date, I still run with people pretty often. Um, but it was it was about to take like trail running from me. Trail running is something that's brought me so much joy because of how I can detach, of how I can explore nature. And in that moment, it was taking away that safety that I felt being able to be out on a trail alone, even on a trail with other people. Um, in the months following, you know, I'd round a corner and if I saw anybody, I would just be fearful inside and turn around. So it took years, it took initial therapy, it took really talking about it to my loved ones, to those close with me, um, to kind of get over that first hurdle of just actually feeling safe by myself, um, because it's a pretty scary experience initially. But I will say, once I moved to Washington, D.C., um, and found a running community there, the Virginia Happy Trails running community, they were incredible. It was a group that I could go out with in the evenings, explore the trails with, and I felt safe in numbers. And I think it was that first step of feeling safe in numbers that really pushed me to feeling safe alone again. And I moved to Utah in 2016, and I fell into the Wasatch Mountain Wranglers community um, in my first week of moving there where they had scheduled group runs every week. And I didn't know anybody. My husband, my now husband, hadn't moved to Utah yet, so I was making friends all myself and exploring the mountains pretty much alone. But luckily I found this great group that really took me under their wing and showed me the ins and outs of the Wasatch and the mountains and how do you navigate these great mountains and how do you do it and feel safe doing it. So I definitely attribute a lot of my growth um, ever since my attack to really finding those communities and finding your people that make you feel safe. Um, and to this day, I like still feel kind of nervous out on the trails. Um, I do like, I run with people as often as I can, but you don't want to have to do that. And I feel like that was that situation almost like forced me into that bubble. And I don't live that way anymore. And I think I really attribute it to the people I've met along the journey. Um, really encouraged me to get out by myself and just feel strong in when I'm doing what I love. I love that. I'm sure the community has really embraced you in that sense as well. And I'm curious about this, this, you know, this past experience that you had that was really traumatic that will always be with you. It's something you will always, it, it'll be in the back of your mind, unfortunately. But has ultra marathon running taught you about like pushing yourself through these challenges? You're at night, you have the headlamp on and like you've said, like you're just chipping away for the last decade. But in that particular race, you're just chipping away 100 yards at a time. You don't want to keep going. You're like, just get to that tree, just get to that rock and you just keep going. And understanding that the pain you're going through is temporary and it will go away essentially i mean it, it'll be there but it won't and so has that has that changed you as a person in your everyday life knowing that these situations too will pass 100 percent um something i like to tell myself during my longer races is like you are strong and you belong and that's a mantra i really do carry with myself even in my everyday life 
Um, it lets me know that like, you know, imposter syndrome, it's really easy to feel as a woman in your career, in your everyday life, in my running life. Um, it, it just shows up everywhere. And it's something that really does ground me um, and helps me think about like, you know, I'm capable, I can do this, I can chip away at this long term goal. And even though it's extremely difficult in this moment, everyday moments are extremely difficult. But you know, just keeping that long term vision um, in the foreground, it's really important. And it, it drives you towards that. Um, something that excites me during my ultra marathons is like thinking about my races in chunks. Um, so for UTMB this summer, for example, I wasn't able to see my crew, my families and friends who were crewing me during this race for about six hour chunks at a time. And this was me running overnight and everything like that too. But just keeping, it's kind of dangling a little carrot in front of you along the way to help you break it up, give you some encouragement. And that's really how I thought about my people this summer, whenever I was having a hard time at any given point during this race was like, okay, like how much closer are we to seeing my people? Because that really is energy. So I always advocate for like having, trying to think about anything that gives you that positive energy at, towards any goal that you're targeting. And I think that's been extremely valuable to me and really like breaking these big objectives down into something that's a little bit more palatable and doable. That's and that was Leah Yingling. She is an ultra runner, biomedical engineer, and Lululemon ambassador. You can hear the rest of that interview on kpcw.org under the shows tab and the mountain life. Stay with us. We'll be back after these words. Welcome back to the mountain life. I'm Lynn Ware Peak. And I'm David Windsor. For the last hundred years, Wyoming cowboys have quote unquote drifted their cattle each fall out of the mountains where they go to the desert for the winter. The cows want nothing to do with this winter wonderland, but the racers of the aptly named winter race called the drift do because they don't have that same sense of self-preservation. These are the words from the site where you can register for this race. Wait, there's more. It's 103 miles of winter wonderland, over 9,000 feet of elevation loss and gain. The temperatures can be sub-zero, the wind can be relentless, and snowfall can be measured in feet. It takes place in Wyoming in the Wind Rivers. And joining us now to tell us more about the drift race are the race organizers, Carrie and Darren Hall. Good morning to both of you. Good morning. Good morning. The only reason that I know about this race is that a friend of mine who is incredibly strong and in his mid-20s did the race in 2023. He didn't finish simply because he did not want to spend a second night out in the the wild, untamed wilderness of Wyoming, of the Wyoming mountains in the cold. So, uh, Carrie, why don't we start with you and tell us how long has this race been going and why? Yeah, so it started, well, the idea started back in uh, the winter of 2016. We had just moved down to Wyoming from Alaska and we went to the stage stop dog sled race, which uses the same start line as we do. And we went down and we watched the race and we learned, wow, there's this huge 
trail network down there, these winter trails. Um, they're groomed, not groomed like you would think for skiing, but groomed for snow machines. Um, and the more we looked at it, we're like, wow, this is amazing. Um, and races like this are pretty common in Alaska. There's a handful of them and we've dabbled in them a little bit. And so we were, we were really excited to get this off the ground. Our first race was the 28 mile race and that took place in 2018. And then the following year in 2019, we added the 13. And then finally the 100, which was kind of the original idea, um, we launched in 2020. So it took about four years from idea to, uh, to actually getting it off the ground. And Darren, since it's been building and you finally got to what you wanted to do was the 103 mile race, but you can still enter doing the shorter distances if you want to just give it a try. How many competed in 2023? Uh, what were our numbers in 23? We had 49 for the 100 and okay. 100 for the 2013. So 149. Total. That yeah. towed the line. Out of the 49 who did the 103 mile race, how many completed all 103 miles? 11. 11. We, <laughs> it was 11 last year. We were a little bit light on finishers. <laughs> the weather played tricks on us. Tell us about the weather. Well, you could see the storm building before the race even started, and we knew we were kind of in for it. We had trouble even getting the checkpoint set up to begin with, with the wind. Um, getting snow machines through was a lot of work. It was probably blowing 50 to 60, I think, gusts in South Pass, which is obviously a long ways away, but we're in the 90s, so I, I don't think we were that bad, but it was pretty rough. You couldn't see every, the drifts were five feet tall in places. Every snow machine that was out on the trail got stuck at some point. So we normally I'll travel by myself quite a lot. And I mostly did not because I was stuck, you know, in the deep powder and, and drifts. This is incredible. I'm I, Lynn and I were talking before, and I, I'm just obsessed with people who are willing to stick their neck out and do things like this, and and really just do it for the internal battle and the challenge and the 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 tough time throughout that 103 miles. So people, as I can understand it, can bike, they can ski, and they can run. Why would someone choose one or the other? Is there have you seen a consistent pattern in a method that seems to work with finishers? Uh, biking is generally faster, um, and it, and it's almost three different athletes. You know, people have their priority. The bikers are definitely different than the runners, and uh, skiers might come more from the runner mold. Um, but yeah, they just generally go with what their strength is. Um, although we do have a couple racers that are trying to do all three disciplines, which is kind of fun. So about how long does the race take? Is there a time frame that they have to finish it in? And what are the parameters as far as when you start and when you, I mean, can you take four days if you want, or you have a certain time frame you have to finish within? Carrie? Yeah, so we have a, traditionally we had a 48-hour cutoff. We extended it last year um, for the weather. We switched our finish line so that it was the same finish line as the 28 and 13. It's the exact same distance, just a different trail. Um, and so then last year, the racers had 56 hours to finish. And um, our three-foot finishers took uh, almost every bit of that to, to get through. It was just, a, it was, the weather was so brutal last year. 
I mean, we have weather every year. We have yet to get just an amazing, you know, no storm, no blizzard, no high winds. Um, but in our faster years, typically the bikers will finish around 18 to 19 hours. The first biker foot um, usually finishes somewhere around 30 hours and skis usually finish somewhere um, around 28 hours or so. And those are all the front runners. Every year in multiple disciplines, we tend to have um, people finishing right up against that 48 hour cutoff. Got it. So help me understand why you guys decided to do this because this seems like when you're out setting up this course and you got five foot drifts and you don't want to go out alone because it's dangerous and all these things Darren what is it do you ever do you ever set up the course during these storms and being like what have we done and why have we gotten so deep into this race <laughs> you know no not really I think that I think our world is so easy these days it's nice to have challenges that push people out of their comfort zone. And, and that goes for the volunteers and the racers. I think that we all get challenged on the course and it's life changing for some people, you know, when they get to the finish line and they've accomplished this feat that at many points feel like it's going to be completely impossible. Um, and then they overcome, you know, all of those hurdles, whether it be 50 mile an hour winds, whether that be 20 or 30 below, whether that be trying not to sweat, you know, when it gets up to 30 and all of a sudden you're, you're wet going into the night, you know, like there's so many different things that you have to deal with dragging your, your sleeping bag and your food and stuff through the wilderness. The wolves are generally howling at some point. So there's always, there's always something that raises those challenges up. And um, when you get through it, it's a pretty meaningful and magical moment. If you're just joining us on The Mountain Life, we're having a conversation with Darren and Carrie Hull. They are the founders and the race organizers of this wild race in Wyoming called The Drift, and it takes place in early March. Carrie, first of all, there's a lot of technology that allows this race to happen. I, because my friend was doing it last year or in 2023 in the spring, I was able to follow everyone. So everyone's got a GPS locator and it's, it's actually really fun. I got obsessed with it for a day, just following these people. So talk a little bit about the technology, how you keep track of people, because that to me seems like it would be the most important thing for their own safety. Yeah, I think to take a step back though, the the safety, you know, we try really hard not to, not to utilize that as, as a, or a component of safety. You know, a lot of that starts with race prep and gear and knowing how to use your gear and really being self-sufficient out there. We use a company called Track Leaders and we essentially put a spot unit on every racer. If they have their own inReach or a different um, unit there, they can use that as well. Um, it does help us quite a bit though from a logistical standpoint. Um, it obviously adds a little bit of safety if you know where people are. And it's great to engage um, families and, and fans and um, it gives us something to do at headquarters as well. So, I mean, it, we've had that from the beginning and, and that's been, it's been great. It's been really helpful. Um, like all technology, sometimes it backfires and you'll get you know a, co a phone call or an email at two o'clock in the morning from somebody's family saying hey i think that they're off course and you'll look in gps being what it is you know it looks like they're in this ravine and you're like no i i've seen that ravine and i promise you they are not there um it would take it would take effort to get there so it has its drawbacks you know every year we're we're snow machining out new units to racers. We're switching them out. Um, everybody goes offline for a period of time. So there's limitations to it, but by and large, it's it, it works really well for us. 
And then that said about the race prep, how does someone go about proving to you that they are a good candidate to go out and brave the wilds? Um, <laughs> it's a it's a little bit of a mishmash. A, a lot of it is finishing other races, but what I found is that a lot of the races, like we did Tuscobia last year, and you you hit little town and little town, fifteen more miles. I ruined my water and I I stopped at a gas station and bought some more. You know where you don't have that opportunity. It's it's more like Alaska in the sense that it's wilderness, and so I think people need to be comfortable in the wilderness. Like we had, we had two climbers that had never competed in a race. They were climbing buddies had done a lot of high mountain stuff and they asked if they could race and I go ahead. And they were two of the nine that finished last year because they know how to tolerate the, the uncomfortable nature of wind blowing snow and whatever. They knew how to work their equipment. They knew that those low points would pass, you know? And so I think that the biggest thing is having people that are resilient and know how to manage themselves in, in those difficult situations or the people that are most successful. So that being said, to, to piggyback on that, so as far as the individuals you see entering these races, do they have a similar background of expertise in the mountains or exposure to cold, or are they more of the long distance marathon runners or cyclists or Ironman type. Carrie, is there is there a consistency of individuals you're seeing signing up for this? Um, I think it's it's actually pretty broad across the board. Um, our registration platform, we use ultrasignup.com. And so I think from that, we naturally get people looking for ultra running races. Um, and, and we certainly have a lot of endurance athletes out there. Um, but we also have a lot of people that are, um, there's kind of a, a niche for this type of racing, people that follow the ITI, um, which is the along uh, 350 or 1,000 mile race um, up in Alaska along the Iditarod Trail. So there are people that are striving for that. There's definitely a core group of winter athletes that that like to do all of these races. And so we, we have a showing from them. Um, we certainly have uh, a number of, you know, your standard endurance athletes, but then there's also some people that come in and we've had people that haven't done a lot of racing, but they have all seven summits. And uh, we've have a local racers, races that maybe wouldn't have thought of doing anything like this, but they live in Pinedale. And so they're like, well, sign us up. Um, so it's really kind of a, I feel like it's pretty broad. And we have some people, for, especially from the South that have just said, you know what, this seems to push everything that I've never experience and I want to give it a shot <laughs> and they, they've some of them have done very well some of them have struggled a little bit I would imagine as the race organizer you guys quietly and you don't have to admit this are sitting back and figuring out who you think is going to make it and who isn't and there's people that come in with a little bit of an ego that you guys are you know that they're going to fail and then there's those quiet types that you know that they're going to humbly make their way across the finish line but it seems that, you know, with the statistics and stuff, that women are often the strongest finishers of this race. Is there is there a coral, anything that you guys have seen and why that is? Yeah, I think if you look back over all of the years, it's, it's close. Um, I think, too, a lot of we kind of have a core female group that keeps coming back every year. And I think experience along the drift course certainly helps you finish the drift course. Two of our racers that have been here all five years um, are females, um, both from Wyoming. We have a racer from Victor, who this is going into her fourth year, and she's trying um, all, all three disciplines. Um, I, I think that there's just there's a core, there's experience there with females. It's kind of 
funny though, because if you look at the, the registration statistics, we really average probably around a 70-30% registration. And so I don't know if that's just, when Lynn emailed me the question, I, I kind of questioned that a little bit. And then I thought I, I listened to a story the other day talking about how uh, it was um, for job applications that when females apply to jobs, they look through and they uh, make sure that they meet every single listed qualification, whereas males would apply for a job that, you know, maybe they met half the qualifications. And so I don't know if that carries over into racing. The females that are willing to sign up are coming in, you know, maybe more prepared, more confident saying like, all right, I'm not signing up unless I know I can do this thing. And maybe men are a little more cavalier, like, yeah, let's go give it a shot and see what happens. I think I'd have to agree with that. And and also, as David and I were talking about before the interview, you know, we as women, we've got 20% more body fat. We have more fat stores to use. And we also go through childbirth. <laughs> men never do anything <laughs> that hard. Um, <laughs> the particular racer I think that you're talking about, because I was following this, is is Jenny Robbins from Victor. Is that right? Yes, yeah. she's um, she's one of our female racers that's come back multiple years. And oh, if you watched last year, she made quite a showing, um, leading the the entire race on skis. Um, ultimately, a, a biker passed her before the end, which goes back to our our you know, bikers always win. But uh, yeah, she she's coming back this year to try it on a bike. So she if she finishes, she'll be our first racer to complete the 100 in all three disciplines. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. Well, I would imagine as well that it depends if you're going to choose which mode of travel and you're just going to pick one, that weather plays so much into it because you wouldn't want to be riding a fat bike along a trail that's blown in or if it's just snowed a foot you don't want to ride a fat bike, you're going to be much better, you know, skiing or, and, you know, and maybe not running either, but wondering if you're running, for example, do people use snowshoes or is it typically packed down enough, Darren? Snowshoes are advisable to have with you. Some people don't bring them. Some people do. With snowshoes, there's a, a mental barrier to putting them on. So a lot of guys, they'll delay putting them on as long as they can, and then they'll regret not doing it earlier. A bike turns into a 90-pound brick, you know, when you're pushing it through the snow, when it's deep. But then as soon as, oftentimes the groomers will come through some point during the race, and all of a sudden, you know, you go from one mile an hour to 10 miles an hour. And so that makes a big difference. But they all have their strengths and weaknesses, Running's probably ultimately the slowest, and um, but well, yeah, they all have strengths and weaknesses. You can see why running would be the slowest because if you're on a fat bike or skis, you've got you can cruise much faster going downhill mm -hmm. anyway. And so then, Carrie, wondering about if you choose to ski, like my friend who did it. I think he ended up doing it on skate skis or may maybe it was classic skis, but he chose the skinny ski route. Do people show up with various types of skis or devising some like little skin that they put on and take off or how does that go? 
we've had quite a variety out there and it's been sort of it's been it's been fun to watch to see what is the best way to tackle this race obviously skate skiing is the fastest um that takes uh, i mean to to skate ski that long on that kind of terrain on those sort of trails i think definitely takes a it takes it takes one heck of an athlete skate skiing is difficult um, but we've certainly we've had people go at it with uh, skate skis that they put kick skins on to get up some of the hills we've had we had a schemo set up last year and come out for the first time we've had classic skis come out um i bet if we sat down and looked at it it's probably close to 50 50 between skates and classic skis um, i know i've had a few skiers especially skate skiers that some of those hills like around the 30 to 40 mile uh area they're they're just they take off their skis and they're kicking steps getting up those hills they're just too steep to to skate but there's a lot I, I feel like that's kind of an evolving thing you know we're only in the fifth year of the race this year and uh, that's our it's our least popular discipline we've had um actually one year without any skiers at all but every year a something a little bit different shows up i think that one you know over the next few years we'll kind of learn a little bit more about what, what is really the best the best take here what's the what's the best setup for this the runners love the course because of their sleds so a lot of the runners will sit down on their sleds and make very good time descending some of those bigger hills What's the record that we've heard for yeah, coming down Pinion Ridge, which is um, near the end of the race, probably around like mile 89, 90 or so. And um, if you're if you're willing to, you can get almost a full mile on your sled. And so we had one racer a couple of years ago tell us he was pretty proud on a Strava. He had something like a four minute mile at mile 90 of a hundred mile race. But he was he was just sitting on a sled. Oh, that's incredible. I. I, yeah, I would imagine only being in the fifth year, it's kind of the athletes, the pioneers that are really moving forward <laughs> and pushing the needle of what works and everyone, it's just kind of a trial by error every single season to figure out the best method to do it. Have you guys ever had a situation where it ended up where we'll call it just like a rescue situation where someone got stuck out there, there was a chance of frostbite or dehydration or, um, you know, getting a wind drift and getting stuck in the in the wilderness. Have you ever had a situation like that? When we rescue a lot of people, um, a rescue is a, maybe a loose term. We've had some pretty heavy asthma type stuff. We call it, a lot of people get what we call the drift cough. And I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is, but they get this weird cough. Maybe it's from the cold high altitude combination. Um, so that's maybe been some of the worst. We have had a little bit of frostbite volunteers and racers, you know, you're out there in 20 below this last year i was a little bit worried but um they do have a pretty extensive gear list and in that blizzard we didn't get back to them for several hours and when i came back through there was six bikers that had bedded down in their sleeping bags in tree wells along the the summit and they did okay they were a little chilly and maybe a little grumpy but we haven't had any huge emergencies but we do evacuate quite a few racers every year I love the little grumpy part. I'm sure there's there's some adult babyhood going on at times during these <laughs> races. Carrie, I'm I'm curious what your guys' vision is for the future of this sport as it progresses. Is it going to be a are you going to make it two loops one time and 10 years it'll be a 206 mile race or something? Do you have a vision of how this sport can progress and where it can go from here? Yeah, I think um, I think right now where our plan is to stick primarily to our 100 mile loop. Um, I can't imagine. I think that you know certainly a 200 mile race is is doable and feasible. 
but boy, I couldn't imagine doing it as two 100 mile loops. I feel like once you got back, it, it would not feel great to go back out again. And there's a lot of other trails out there though that we're not utilizing. We've thrown around multiple ideas like a stage race. Um, there's some other mountain lodges up on the north end of that trail network. Um, we've thought about adding a 50 mile race um, just as sort of an introduction to that 100 mile distance. Those are probably the, the main things that we've looked at. We did look last year at changing our course a little bit and decided to stick with the original. As David commented, if you go on to the Drift website, it's the drift100.com, there's a picture and he, he said, oh, wow, it just looks like some skiers, you know, going up a really mellow trail. And I said, well, yeah, I think it's it starts off that way. So it's kind of a lollipop. So it's would be easy as you're kind of mm -hmm. coming into the lower part of, of the valley. And then it gets gnarly. Again, 9,500 vertical. Yeah, don't be deceived by that photo on a website that makes it look like ah, rainbows and unicorns. What, Carrie, are the biggest caveats for you if, if you're talking to someone that might discourage, might have you discouraging them from doing it? I think lack of experience um, is is one. Um, certainly, you know, as we kind of touched on before, um, it doesn't have to be. You don't have to have a lot of ultra experience. Both of our our first ultras were were winter races up in Alaska, um, and I appreciated them letting us in without you know an extensive resume. But, um, you know, if you have the experience, you know, like Darren said, mountaineers, mountaineers do really well in our race um, because the the conditions are similar. Um, a lot of ultra or at least summer ultra races are pretty well supported I and mean, you don't need to carry a lot at all. And there's, you know, good road access, things along those lines. But out here, it's it's very much more a wilderness race. And I think that's why that those mountaineers tend to do well. They've they've been there and done that. As far as other things that are kind of a red flag, I, I think there's, there's a level of arrogance that is certainly kind of raised some eyebrows. If somebody comes in um, and they haven't done a lot of these races and they're like, oh, I'm going to come in and run this under 24 hours. Um, I've heard that a couple of times before. And I feel like that's that's the biggest red flag for me. <laughs> if you say you're going to come in and run it under 24 hours, part of me doesn't want you to start. Psychologically, that's tough when you think you're going to do it under 24 hours and you show up at the first aid station, you know, in 12 hours. 12 hours. <laughs> <laughs> and you're just whipped. And so sometimes the better athletes that have just run summer ultras, they they don't fare as well because mentally it's really tough. If you think you're going to run a 5K and all of a sudden the race is a marathon, like it's going to be really hard and it's kind of that same idea. Races that are kind of wishy-washy as well. If you if you tow that line, you need to tow that line with the intent to finish, and with the intent to finish, you know, no matter what. Obviously, if something you know a safety issue comes up, we'll get you out of there. Um, but you, there's a level of commitment to just starting that race. If you go in with a, let's go give it a shot and see what happens, you're you're not going to finish. So I think just committing from the get-go, you you have to go in knowing that you're you're just going to do this you're going to get this thing done and you're going to finish and you carry all of your own food and water i mean i'm supposing people melt water along the way if they need but you're carrying it all yeah, we have four aid stations out there and the aid stations are um, one that's a little harder to get to is maybe not quite as well stocked, but there's water at all of them, um, hot food and some snacks. 
Um, so sometimes, usually only one section um, between the first and the second aid station is 25 miles, and it's it's a hard 25 miles. It's the most remote, and the highest elevation, and probably the least traveled as far as the trails go. And so um, usually if people have to stop and, and melt snow to make water, that's where they have to do it. Usually if they can kind of plan and get through that section, they can fill up with enough water at the first aid station to get them through. Well, Carrie and Darren, it's been... <laughs> really interesting talking to you. I feel like I could keep asking questions about <laughs> this crazy race, the drift. Thank you so much for joining us on The Mountain Life. Best of luck with the 2024 race taking place March 8th through 10th. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in to The Mountain Life here on KPCW. You can always find our archive shows at kpcw.org under the shows tab or anywhere you get your podcasts, KPCW The Mountain Life.